self-compassion. I am enough. I make mistakes because I'm human and I am still a good human. Even if I make a mistake, I'm still a good doctor. Even if I make a mistake, that has been critical for me personally in feeling well and whole in my job. This is Meaningful Medicine. In a challenging and unpredictable world with high burnout rates, this is a podcast where incredible individuals share their most meaningful patient experiences and focus on those moments of positivity and joy that sparked their love of healthcare and changed the way they practice medicine. Hi, I'm Nicole Hohenstein, and I'm an emergency medicine resident at UCSF. Hi, I'm Shiva Kayambashi. I'm a doctor and professor of family and community medicine at UCSF. We're the co-hosts of Meaningful Medicine, We created this podcast to highlight stories of healthcare professionals who have found a sense of meaning, resilience, and joy in their work. Hi, Shiva. How are you doing? Hi, Nicole. I am doing really well today. I'm feeling good. I'm not feeling too burnt out at the moment. How are you today, Nicole? How are things? I am actually feeling really well as well. I'm on a rotation right now that actually allows weekends, so feeling like my burnout level is quite low which is right on topic. Today, we're tackling burnout in medicine, which I'm very excited about. I am too, Nicole. I was just reflecting, you're just starting residency. And I was thinking about you and hoping you're not feeling, you know, actual symptoms of burnout yet. But it is something to be aware of a little bit as an occupational hazard, I think, especially in the times of COVID and being a physician right now. And I was just thinking about myself and during my residency and my career clinically. I think there have been times where I felt really exhausted emotionally and energetically, but I'm not sure that I really felt what I would call burnt out in the sense of not being able to recover from that. And I think that I I would credit that to a lot of the wonderful social support I've always had in my work setting. What about you so far? What are you noticing, Nicole, about your work experience? I think for me, I also have been lucky enough to not fully been burnt out. You know, I definitely felt physically, emotionally exhausted after taking like step one, for example. But in the clinical setting, A lot of times I'll feel energized with my patients, with the clinical setting, but I must say when I'm in a situation where I'm not necessarily feeling like my skills are being utilized or I'm not being valued as a member of the team, thank goodness that's only happened a few times and only for a few weeks. But I think that if I was in a situation for long enough like that, that I think that would potentially lead to personal burnout. We were just talking a little bit before we started today about an article in the New York Times that was just published September 29th, just a few weeks ago, that's called Physician Burnout Has Reached Distressing Levels, New Research Finds. And in that article, there's a description of Mayo Clinic proceedings that showed that 63%, almost two thirds of physicians surveyed reported at least one symptom of burnout at the end of 2021 during the pandemic and at the beginning of 2022. And that's a really big increase. That's almost a 20% increase from the 44% that reported at least one symptom of burnout in 2017. And that was around the same in 2011. In this survey, also only 30% felt satisfied with their work-life balance, and that's compared with 45% five years earlier. So this whole point of studying burnout, being interested in 
understanding it and talking about it is really important for physicians and healthcare workers in general. And the fact that it's linked to higher rates of signs of mental unwellness, including alcohol abuse and suicidal ideation, as well as outcomes, patient outcomes and medical errors. It's quite scary that, you know, most of the physicians, at least from this study, are feeling some sort of burnout. And I think this is some of the reason why a lot of physicians are leaving medicine and a lot of healthcare workers are deciding to enter different fields. And so I think this is such an important topic. And I'm so excited to introduce Dr. Larissa Thomas, who's an expert in the field of physician well-being and burnout. Dr. Larissa Thomas is a UCSF professor of clinical medicine and a faculty hospitalist at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. She is the Director of Well-Being for UCSF Graduate Medical Education and the UCSF Academy of Medical Educators Endowed Chair for the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning. Dr. Thomas's interests include medical education and development of physician well-being initiatives with a focus on systems and culture change to improve trainees' well-being. She is also a member of the Steering Committee of the National Collaborative for Healing and Renewal in Medicine, also known as CHARM, a working group to establish best practice recommendations for physician well-being, and she directs the CHARM GME Well-Being Leaders Network. Welcome, Dr. Thomas. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Thomas. Thank you for joining us. We like to start each of our episodes by asking our guests, in short, if you could share a meaningful moment at some point from early in your training or at any point that you'd like to share that was especially formative or what you might call a defining experience. Yeah, I was thinking about this and I had a clinic in residency that was during my intern year, we all have clinics in internal medicine. And during intern year, you feel particularly ill-equipped to be the primary care doctor for patients, especially those that have extreme medical complexity. And at the time I was in residency, the clinic that we were in specifically was meant for people who had multimorbidity. Almost every patient had three or more medical problems, which was quite overwhelming as an intern. And specifically, I had a patient who was a young man who had become a paraplegic from a gunshot wound and now had terrible decubitus ulcers and was wheelchair bound. And he would always come late to clinic and he would decline to have his wounds examined. And I knew nothing about wound care, literally nothing, because we aren't taught about it in medical school by and large. And you know, he had a lot of mistrust of the healthcare system, understandably, and for good reason, based on a lot of his experiences. And I was quite overwhelmed. And I met with one of my clinic mentors, and he taught me a little bit about wound care. And then I learned a little bit about wound care. And then I shadowed one of the wound care nurses. And then I went with my preceptor to the patient's home to be able to do an exam in his home and be able to meet with him in an environment that felt safer for him and was able to slowly build rapport with him in that setting and really make some progress, I think, with his engagement in care and also recognizing the limits of what I could do and the patient's own autonomy, which he did have and that I couldn't fix everything about his situation, but I could be there when he wanted to access care. And I actually learned quite a bit about wound care from working with him and made my preclinic conference that we all had to do as residents about wound care. And now I do a talk on wound care for the residents, which is still, I'm sad to say, usually the first time that a doctor has been learning about 
principles of wound care. So I think Shiva knows quite a bit about wound care. But yes, this was something that really had a longer term impact. And I was with him through multiple hospitalizations. I think I learned a lot about myself and recognizing that you realize patients do have autonomy, even in the setting of structural violence. And it's part of your growth as a physician to meld both things and hold both things at the same time. So I learned a lot about that from him. That is such a great story. We'd love to ask you if you could describe what the term burnout means and share how you became passionate about finding solutions to combat burnout. Yeah, so burnout, I think, is in the common parlance a lot now, which is really great to know and really a positive development in terms of talking about the challenges with well-being. And burnout is intuitive in terms of what it means, but it also, in the most commonly used definition, does have a technical definition. And the study you referenced, the instrument they use there is called the Maslow Burnout Inventory. That's the most commonly used burnout scale. And that has been studied and was developed by psychologists actually in the 80s. And this scale includes three dimensions, which are cynicism or depersonalization, emotional exhaustion, and a sense of personal accomplishment. It's a continuous scale. So the higher you score on different dimensions, the higher your burnout is on the continuum. Some people try to create cut points for the purposes of measurement, but it's meant to be used more as a continuous scale. And only having one of those domains, cynicism or emotional exhaustion in physicians, those are the two most common domains. Either one of those can give you criteria for burnout. What I really like about this concept and the way that this scale was developed conceptually is really it's about the mismatch between the desired state of your work and what you do on an everyday basis. So the greater that mismatch is, the greater the potential for burnout to form. And I think as we talk today, we can illustrate some of the ways that that mismatch manifests in our current medical system and in medical training and in our culture of medicine. So really the mismatch between desired state and reality. And I think that that's why sometimes even when someone is working hard, they don't necessarily feel burned out because they can feel meaning and fulfillment. And sometimes when people appear to not be having the hardest time of their job or their work life, they may still be experiencing great burnout because of that mismatch. And so that's the most commonly used definition of burnout. And the important thing as well is that it's not static. If you feel tired one day, that's not burned out. Burnout is persistent, but not permanent. And so I think that that's also important. It's not like you flip a switch and suddenly you're burned out and can never be unburned out again. And it can develop gradually as well, or it can develop acutely after certain events that we can talk about more. I became passionate about finding solutions to combat burnout. I experienced burnout during residency and it made me interested in the field of well-being. And I did a literature search then as a resident and was surprised to learn that even in 2010s, there was a lot of literature already describing the problem of burnout and the high prevalence of burnout that was already known at that time. And so I became interested in first 
thinking about individual interventions to address burnout and then also expanding that to look more at organizational and system approaches to addressing burnout. I really appreciate the angle of it not being a permanent state and that there are solutions. And that leads to what we talked about at the beginning, which is the reviews that have been done, studies that have been done, and there's a lot. And it seems, uh, you know, it's increased since COVID has happened for sure, but it looks like that the overall prevalence of burnout in healthcare is estimated to be around 65, 67%. And there's a prevalence of emotional exhaustion amongst physicians to be in the 70% range also. And Dr. Thomas, in your opinion, what do you feel are the main causes of burnout for people who are working in healthcare? And could you talk a little bit about how you feel the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted burnout in healthcare among healthcare workers? What we were seeing were actually positive trends up until the pandemic over the five to seven years before the pandemic, I think there was a lot of attention on system change and cultural change to address burnout. And we had actually started seeing the national point prevalence of burnout go down a little bit as low as the low 40s. And then we actually saw in the same group that did that study that you referenced at the beginning, they actually saw that in the end of 2020, in a relatively small sample size, but a representative size, burnout had gone down even further. And the thought was that perhaps this was related to feeling like there was going to be a light at the end of the tunnel when vaccines came out and we thought really this was the end of the pandemic. And then I think with the study that you're referencing, this was during the Omicron wave and people really had the wind taken out of their sails by having the pandemic once again be surging the same problems that we were addressing in March 2020, but without the same societal support and without the same investment of acute resources in supporting healthcare worker well-being. The nightly claps for healthcare workers were long gone and the sort of free lunches every day for healthcare workers that were happening to some extent right in the beginning of the pandemic. As the pandemic progressed into a more chronic phase, a lot of those things evaporated because it became incorporated into the way of life in the United States. And then the sense that much of the country had moved on from the pandemic, but still in in healthcare work, we still are living the effects of the pandemic, not only and perhaps less so now with the seriousness of illness for our patients and the moral distress around patient care, which thankfully has much diminished with vaccines and treatments, but the effects of resignations, staffing shortages, staffing outages due to COVID, They've really persisted, and I think that's some of what we're seeing. But I think that the rapid changes that we've seen in burnout for the pandemic speak to the fact that burnout is affected by forces that are systemic and also can change depending on those forces and how they're changing. Thank you so much for describing how COVID-19 pandemic has impacted burnout. Based on your experience and research, can you describe the system-level causes of burnout and share a systems-level intervention and cultural interventions that have been implemented to try and tackle burnout? I think that that is, in a nutshell, some of how the pandemic has affected healthcare worker well-being, although we actually still don't know completely how that's affected things. We do have good science on the drivers of burnout. We may not have all of the solutions yet, and all of the interventions may not have as robust of an evidence base, but I think there has been 
quite a bit of consensus around the drivers of burnout. And I would say conversely to the point you mentioned, when these factors are not optimized, burnout can result. And when they're optimized, fulfillment can result. And I think that we're trying to move away a little bit from a deficit mindset of just avoiding burnout and trying to optimize meaning and fulfillment. So to that point, we described this a little bit in the Charter on Physician Wellbeing, which was a collaborative effort among many professional societies and organizations that was published in 2018. And we described it as societal drivers, organizational drivers, and individual drivers. So I think what's important about burnout is it's all things simultaneously, and the system components are a greater proportion than the individual components. So in terms of the organizational factors, I think really it boils down to systems in which the efficiency hasn't been optimized to promote time spent in meaningful work and time to attend to your non-medicine interests. So examples of that are teams that aren't functioning at a level that allows each person to do the work for which they're uniquely trained. So when the work of physicians is not patient care, but is spent doing administrative work or non-clinical work, I think when it's not desired, that can lead to burnout. When there's a mismatch between a job demands and resources, either too much work or not enough resources or both, that can lead to burnout as well. And then I think in terms of cultural drivers, when their culture doesn't promote trust, meaning, and collaboration, and leadership behaviors don't promote a trustworthy culture, that is also a space where burnout can live. There's also a role for policies to allow physicians to be able to do their work without fear of repercussions if they have mental illness or they need additional support. So policies around licensure and mental health disclosure are really important too. While the system factors are the primary driver on the individual level, I will say systems have a role in supporting people to anticipate the challenges of medicine and to have time for self-care. So intentional self-care is still an important part of mitigating burnout. And the role of the system in that is to make sure that people have the time and space to do that. In terms of effective interventions, these are works in progress. If we had it all figured out, we'd be making all of those changes. But I think in terms of systems interventions, some of the things that have been done both at the national level and within microsystems include things like improving policies and regulations to reduce the amount of documentation necessary for different types of encounters, allowing medical student documentation to count. That was a big change by CMS so that there wasn't duplicate documentation required for every encounter that a medical student participates in as real work. And then things like strategies to do smart inbox routing for the electronic health record, which allows different team members to answer non-clinical messages, delegating specific functions of patient care to other team members in a collaborative way that has everybody doing the work for which they're uniquely trained. And then I would say solutions that either are technological or adding additional staffing to try to address some of the 
complexity of modern medicine in terms of documentation. So scribes, I would say, are really a workaround for not having the adequate technology to mitigate some of the documentation burden, but scribes have been a positively received intervention. And then briefly with cultural interventions, this is very difficult. Anyone who studies culture and anthropologists will say culture is not a thing and you can't do intervention A and expect culture to change as a result. It's very complex. That said, two important elements of culture change are having leaders that use strategies that engage their employees in problem solving or their workers in problem solving. So things like leader rounds that a lot of organizations do, those actually more than anything really promote trust in the organization and trust among leadership and the people who are doing frontline work. Strategies like design thinking that are involve participants in generating ideas for change. Appointing institutional leaders that have dedicated time to work on well-being efforts. That is actually a cultural intervention that says we think well-being is an important part of our approach to the healthcare organization. And then cultural interventions in the workplace that promote meaning, such as things like Schwartz rounds, which many organizations do where a patient or a clinically meaningful case is discussed in an interprofessional setting to discuss some of the challenges and joys of clinical medicine. I think a lot of initiatives that I've heard about is focused on more of the individual, where the individual is lacking doing the yoga, lacking doing the meditation. But I think oftentimes people sit back and ask, well, when do I have that time? And I love how you're talking about how the system can work to create that time to build in wellness. So thank you so much. This month, the National Academy of Medicine published the National Plan for Health Workforce Wellbeing. The seven priority areas that were included in this national plan meant to increase healthcare workers' well-being are one, create and sustain positive work and learning environments and culture, two, invest in measurement, assessment, strategies, and research. Three, support mental health and reduce stigma. Four, address compliance, regulatory, and policy barriers for daily work. Five, engage effective technological tools. Six, institutionalize well-being as a long-term value. And seven, recruit and retain a diverse and inclusive healthcare workforce. Dr. Thomas, what do you think of this plan, and do you think it will lead to appreciable change and improvement in healthcare burnout? Yeah, I think it's very exciting that this has been crystallized at a national level. The National Academy of Medicine is a very powerful organization in terms of driving thought and change in medicine. And I think, as I described, this really crystallizes a lot of the things that we know are important for well-being, but really codifies it. And includes, for example, the Surgeon General in the conversation. I think what the strength of this national plan is that it has the potential to broadly impact medicine beyond the well-being silo. It really elevates well-being as integral to the future of healthcare and the healthcare workforce. And I think it has the potential similarly to how the To Air is Human report fundamentally changed the quality and patient safety culture in medicine from one that was focused on the individual to one that was focused on health systems improvement to improve patient safety. I think we've seen that the National Academy has had impact in that type of intervention before. And so I'm hopeful. I think 
we need to see how much these things are adopted. Many of the changes that are advocated are difficult and, and it will take work. It's not, as you're saying, as simple as, you know, providing a yoga class. It really requires systems change. It requires prioritizing well-being as co-equal and integral to other priorities in the healthcare system. And I think Tom Bodenheimer and Christine Sinsky had a really impactful piece describing this concept of the quadruple aim. The quadruple aim really expands on this idea of the triple aim, which the Institute for Healthcare Improvement developed, which says that to optimize the healthcare system, you really want to simultaneously improve patient care, high value care, and population health at the same time. And this piece of the quadruple aim says, in order for all of that to work, you also have to really emphasize the care of the provider and provider well-being, and it's integral. It's not secondary. It's actually important for the functioning of the healthcare workforce. And I think this report really brings that to the forefront. I think that there's a lot of enthusiasm for improving well-being. I think people struggle to know exactly where to go, and this plan really helps outline some of the steps that organizations and leaders and the nation can take to do that. For so many years, we have ignored the well-being of the clinicians. And I want to include our colleagues in nursing and other colleagues in all the fields of physical therapy, nutritionists, social workers, everyone, Dr. Thomas, that you and I work with at San Francisco General, who works so hard. And everyone feels like they are just working above and beyond. And I actually think they are. And they're experiencing symptoms of burnout also, whether they're able to even talk about it or not, because most people don't even have the time or space to talk about how they're feeling. So I really appreciate the perspective and the changes that are on the way and all the thought that's been put into it. It reminds me of a joke that I just heard yesterday by a four-year-old boy who said to me, the joke is, why did the peanut butter quit his job? Because he was being spread too thin. Ooh. <laughs> Larissa, you can use that in any of your <laughs> presentations. I'm right, I'm right. <laughs> But that is my experience among all of my, really my beautiful colleagues in medicine and nursing and nutrition and social worker and all the various rehab specialists, the, the feeling of being spread too thin, the feeling of being understaffed and, you know, having, they, you might have, you know, previously had only X number of patients to care for per shift or per day. Uh, and now you have X times three, you know, for example. And so that feeling of exhaustion and cynicism and depletion and uh, depersonalization and lack of hope, those all can come when you feel that spread thin, I think, and not supported or not replenished in some way. I would love to just talk a little bit about an article in academic medicine that you and your colleagues published, Dr. Thomas, in 2020, where you describe design thinking or human-centered design as a potential intervention also to decrease burnout. And design thinking is an approach to problem solving that focuses on understanding emotions and human dynamics. And it may be ideally suited to tackling well-being as a complex problem. Dr. Thomas, can you talk a little bit about design thinking and talk about how your team decided on this intervention for combating burnout? And what were the results of your study? 
Yeah, this was a really interesting intervention where we had a group of residents join to learn principles of design thinking and work on developing solutions that were maybe a little more outside the box to addressing well-being as a systems issue. We use the approach that was developed at the Stanford School of Design. And really what this process is effective for is getting unstuck when you're in a complex or wicked problem. So these are problems that are really ecosystem problems where the inputs and the causes are a little bit vague sometimes. And then the effects of an intervention can be sometimes different than you anticipate because of the complex human dynamics in that ecosystem. And well-being is a classic wicked problem. It's not as simple as yoga, but it's also not as simple as just less work. It's not as simple as more money. It's really complex because it involves human feelings. It really gets to the point of how this process can help to capture the empathy and human emotions that underlie the reasons why some solutions may be successful and some might fail. first part of design thinking involves understanding the problem. And instead of focusing tactically on the question, like, what can we do to improve your well-being? We focused on, tell me about a time in residency that was really hard. What was hard about it? Tell me about a time when you felt like your best self at work. What was that like? And you use these stories to really cultivate this energizing design process. And the brainstorming emanates from learning about people's experiences rather than the tactics that people think might work to address their problems. Then you use a process of brainstorming to try to think outside the box and unconstrain your thinking, even if just for a bit. I think in medicine, we are very constrained because you can't brainstorm how to solve a patient clinical problem. You have to solve it with the evidence-based strategies that you have in front of you. And so I think we are used to thinking in a constrained fashion about what's possible, but this allows you to unconstrain your thinking for a short time, come up with pilots that can build on a delightful idea that you generate in brainstorming. And then it allows you to rapidly try pilots and test them out quickly. And it allows you to fail in a safe way. So you try something out quickly, you see how it works. If it doesn't work, you change something and try it again. And the residents who participated really felt like it helped them to think bigger and to think in a more broad way about well-being. And they came up with some ideas that um, some of the pilots were successful and some of them weren't, but the pilots that were successful were able to be figments for later interventions. And more importantly, they felt like their leadership was hearing them and taking their ideas and moving them forward in addressing well-being challenges. I'd be curious, as a follow-up, if you could share a couple of those success stories and what were those interventions like? What happens in design thinking is you get an idea or a theme. How might we, is the question you ask, how might we solve well-being in residency? What might we build to solve well-being in residency? And then the themes, the brainstorming themes, people would pick a problem they wanted to work on. So one of them was inspiration ideas. So one of the inspiration ideas was family dinners. So it wasn't literally about having a family dinner, but just things that promoted well-being, a family dinner. And so the idea here was how can we have more community and residency and get people to gather and have community? And so they started piloting residency family dinners and getting people together who may not otherwise get together in residency from different classes. 
people who had clinic at different sites and things like that to get together and, and just talk about anything, but also share some of the challenges and joys of being in medicine. What came out of that was this pilot called Residency Families, where we started a structure where we tried to match communities of residents together to have these, these dinners kind of on a regular basis. And that was really interesting. And I think a good lesson from design thinking because we scaled it really quickly. And I think design thinking encourages you to scale, but with continued iteration. And we scaled it very quickly and ran into a lot of implementation barriers because of resident schedules, which are very challenging. People were not co-located. They weren't scheduled for time off at the same time. And it wasn't built into the system in a way that protected people's time, which was understandable because it was a new idea. But what ended up emanating from that was adapting that same principle of having a family in residency to creating a peer support program. We decided at a certain point that that was a challenging thing to implement at that time. And so developed a peer support program where we actually trained senior residents to be peer supporters who could meet their peers at a time and place that worked for them, but still provide that same kind of touch point that the family concept was meant to provide. And so that, I think, an example of how the initial idea that you test in design thinking might not ultimately be the end product that's the most successful. But if you have that design thinking mindset, if you run into barriers, you don't just like toss the idea out and not try to move on as often happens with unsuccessful interventions. But you actually go back to the principle and say, what is a different way that we can tackle this principle that we determined is really important, which is a sense of family and community and residency. Dr. Thomas, can you describe a time when you yourself felt burned out and how did burnout impact your interactions with colleagues, patients, and even family and friends? And how did you eventually recover from burnout? The period when I recall having the most burnout was somewhere around the middle of my second year of residency. I think a few things contributed. Intern year is often known as being a time that's very high for burnout, but for whatever reason for me, that was not the worst for me. I think second year, For me, that was a time of a lot of personal growth. I had a death in the family during that time. I found second year to be existentially more challenging in terms of realizing that some of my priorities and goals for my career had changed. And some of the things I had come in wanting to do, I no longer really wanted to do in terms of my long-term career. That was really challenging. I felt a little bit lost. The moving into the senior leadership role was challenging. In our residency, we had relatively good periods where we had time off and weekends. So we would have, you know, two months where we would do inpatient, then we'd have two months where we would do outpatient and elective. And we actually had a lot of free time during that time. And I actually found those times really hard. And that was surprising to me and distressing. And I think that the reason I found those times of less work to be hard were because I felt like my life had become defined by being at work. Most of my community was actually working with me. And then when I was off, I didn't know who to call to hang out with. (laughs) And so I think I I strangely felt isolated during that time. But it was a disconnect because I I felt like I was supposed to be happy because I had time off. So I think that that's also important to acknowledge. Sometimes the times that you're burned out aren't the times that on paper 
you quote unquote should be burned out. And, and there's just, it's really important to have self-compassion that how you feel is how you feel. And there are a lot of valid reasons why any particular time could be subjectively worse for you, even if it looks objectively better in terms of hours. So I think in terms of what helped me recover from it, I really tried to meet with a lot of mentors who could help normalize some of what I was going through. My colleagues, luckily my residency colleagues were really amazing. And that community, just really my best friends for the rest of my life. And then I think as I moved into my third year of residency, I started to feel a little bit more grounded in terms of the merging of my professional and personal self. The cognitive load got a lot lower. That's a huge challenge in residency. Not only is the workload high, but the cognitive work is high because you're learning so much all the time. And third year, I felt more comfortable with the knowledge. I kind of had a career direction, had good friendships and relationships. And I started looking into the science of burnout and it was very validating and helped me to make sense of what I was going through. And I think all those things combined, it wasn't any one intervention but all of those things combined definitely help. One other thing I want to mention that's really important that we didn't talk about is I also had depression during that time. And I think with all the conversation around burnout, we're still not talking as much about mental health and they're two different things. So the reason I mentioned that is I probably did not take advantage of opportunities that were important to address my depression. I addressed a lot of the burnout aspects of it, but I think if I had started a medication during residency, I'm on a medication now. And if I had started a medication during residency, I think I would have recovered from my depression a lot faster than I did. And so I just want to normalize that because both things can be present at the same time or they can be present independently. And to not recognize depression in addition to burnout misses an opportunity to use evidence-based treatments to be well. So important to talk separately, to bring them both to light, but to be able to talk about them as separate conditions that really need to be addressed in slightly different ways or moderately different ways or very different ways, but in in unique ways for each of us. Dr. Thomas, based on your research, do you have any recommendations of ways that people that are listening who might feel like they do have some burnout or a lot of burnout, how we can combat the burnout in our lives and bring ourselves back toward well-being? One of the challenges is there's no one-size-fits-all approach to addressing it at an individual level. I think knowing who your advocates are in your own institution, your own program, who you can go to if you recognize a system that you feel like could be improved. You cannot task yourself with fixing the system on your own, and that's not possible for any of us, myself included, even though I have a role in the system. So knowing who your advocates are, learning about the system resources that are available to you so that you feel like you have a connection to the system change element. Advocacy, I think many of our medical students and residents have a lot of experience and interest in advocacy. And I think that that can be an aspect that can be burnout mitigating for a lot of people using your voice to help drive change forward. But in terms of individual, I do want to say, you know, it's important that your program give you time to be able to practice self-care or that your institution, if you're not a resident or student, 
There are a lot of regulations. The ACGME, for example, requires that programs provide opportunity to attend mental health appointments, to attend medical appointments, to be able to have meaningful interactions in medicine. So these are actually built into the regulatory requirements for programs. So it's important to know that as well. And so when you have the time off, I think it's important to do the things that make you feel well. You Only you know that. But also to think about something intentional that will help you merge your personal and professional identities. Especially the time of medical training is extremely challenging because it's a time of huge growth. You come into medicine as someone who is not a medical professional, and you come out of medical training as someone who is simultaneously a human and a doctor. And what happens during that process is this true merging of the personal and professional selves. And that's what allows you to be yourself with your patients. And that's what allows you to have a meaningful experience in your job. I think Self-compassion is really helpful as a strategy. There is emerging evidence around the role of self-valuation in likelihood of burnout. Many of us who come into medicine, not to a person, but a lot of us have constructed our self-worth based on external achievements. We've been in an achievement-oriented mindset, many of us, to get into college, to get into medical school, to get into residency. And what that ends up doing is making us more vulnerable to reaching the limits of what we can do as humans. So self-compassion, I am enough. I make mistakes because I'm human and I am still a good human even if I make a mistake. I'm still a good doctor even if I make a mistake. That has been critical for me personally in feeling well and whole in my job. I appreciate you sharing. Really, I I don't think I've thought about the melding of the personal and professional identities and how oftentimes that can be difficult and how if you're not feeling truly authentic at work and then you come home and you're feeling like you're not fully there at home either, you can often get lost and not feel like yourself. So I I could see how that would be very important to do. As we wrap up the podcast today, we wanted to ask if you had any advice to share for medical trainees who are at the beginning stages of their careers in medicine. I guess I would just amplify some of the things that I said earlier, but just to sum it up, I think, you know, the things that make medicine rewarding at a fundamental level also make it challenging, even if we could make it a perfect system. We have a tremendous privilege of caring for patients who are in very difficult circumstances And that really makes it rewarding, but really can also make it a very challenging field. People who go into medicine generally have big hearts and have a lot of empathy. And if you can harness that and cultivate it, medicine is a very rewarding field. But just, you know, having self-compassion that the work you do as a trainee, the cognitive work you do and the work you do, the self-work you do, it's real work. And the process of personal growth and change is real work. And it's ultimately transformative and meaningful, but also hard. And while systems change is being worked on, you have a role to play as an advocate, both for your patients and for yourselves, and, you know, to partner with people who are trying to change things. There are real strategies that can imbue meaning into your work. And I think taking advantage of those in addition to advocating for systems change is what really the future of of well-being is about. And sorry, the last thing I'll say too is just learning to identify what your true strengths are. I think your signature strengths... This is a positive psychology strategy, but these are the things no one can take away from you. Whether you make an error, whether you feel 
like you are average because at some point all of us are average. (laughs) We're working in a high functioning environment with high performing people and it can really amplify imposter syndrome and harnessing your strengths. No one can take those away from you. And these are what make you an amazing doctor. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. This has been incredible. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in today and allowing us to be one of your meaningful moments. Please rate, review, and subscribe and share with friends, family, and colleagues. Meaningful Medicine was produced by Shiva Kayambashi, Nicole Hohenstein, David Elkin, Nikki Elkin, Ahaley Chattapadai, and Leigh Kodama. Editing by Nicole Hohenstein, Nikki Elkin, and Leigh Kodama. Intro and closing by Daniel Wentling. On Meaningful Medicine, we are careful to ensure that all stories are compliant with healthcare privacy laws and details may have been changed to ensure patient confidentiality. All views expressed are of the person speaking and not their employer.